Have you ever noticed that bronze medalists often seem happier than silver medalists? It seems weird, right? But you also sort of understand it. If you win bronze, you get to go home as an Olympic medalist. But if you win silver, you probably just end up thinking, if only I'd pushed a little bit harder. Maybe you felt this yourself, even if you're not an Olympic athlete. Maybe you got a B plus in school, which is a great mark, but couldn't help thinking about how close you were to an A. That's regret. And it feels, well, bad. But Dan Pink says it's necessary and he's got a whole lot of research to back it up. Dan is the best-selling author of Drive, A Whole New Mind, When, and now The Power of Regret, How Looking Backwards Moves Us Forward. Dan is one of my favourite authors, and his last appearance on How I Work was one of my favourite episodes, so I'm super excited to have him back. We discuss why having no regrets is not the superpower people think it is and how Dan changed his behaviour based on regrets in his own life, and how Dan's approach to work and motivation has changed since he wrote Drive many years ago. My name is Dr. Amantha Imber. I'm an organisational psychologist and founder of behavioural science consultancy Inventium, and this is How I Work, a show about how to help you do your best work. For the last couple of years, Dan has immersed himself in the world of regret and the power of this underrated emotion. So I wanted to know, how does regret inform his day-to-day decision-making? It's changed between today and a few years ago before I started doing the research. I mean, I was someone who um, sort of thought about regret as something to avoid, but then when I couldn't avoid it, it really brought me down. And so then I tried to avoid it even more. Um, now I, um, I, I have a better understanding that regret is a powerful, powerful teacher, um, that regret, um, if we treat it right, not doing it the way I was doing it, not ignoring it, not wallowing it and it can clarify what we value and instruct us on how to do better. And so what are some of the routines, um, whether they be things that you might do daily or even annually to like as a result of investigating regret? So one of the things that I learned was something, and this is, this is new to me. That doesn't mean that it's new, uh, is, is, is something called self-compassion, which I don't know whether you've talked about that on your show before. When we make mistakes, we tend to be brutal on ourselves. When you think about our self-talk, that is the way we talk to ourselves, it is cruel. It, I mean, if I were to broadcast my self-talk, if I were to let you listen in on it, you would think I was a lunatic. If, if I were to use this, the way that I talk to myself in a workplace, I would be, I would be sacked. And so what we should do is, but that's not useful. Um, there's a lot of research showing that self-esteem is overrated and self-criticism is overrated. What's woefully underrated is something called self-compassion. And with self-compassion, we should look at our mistakes and our screw-ups and treat ourselves with kindness rather than contempt. We should recognize that these mistakes are part of the human condition, that everybody has them. And we should also um, recognize that our mistakes are a moment in our lives, not the full definition of our lives. So that's been really helpful for me to actually treat myself with greater compassion. 
And so how do you specifically do that? Because there are a few strategies in your book, The Power of Regret, for, I guess, giving yourself um, more self-compassion. But what do you specifically do? So I have some regrets and I've had some regrets about kindness. Um, And the kindness regrets that I have are not regrets about having been a bully, having really affirmatively mistreated people. I, I don't think I've ever done that. But I have regrets about, in, in a weird way, about inaction, in, uh, kindness inactions. So I, when I was in school, when I was in university, when I was a young professional, there were many situations where people were being excluded. They weren't being treated fairly. They weren't being treated right. I wasn't doing the affirmative excluding, but I saw it going on and I knew it was wrong and I didn't do a damn thing. And that bugs me to this day. Now, what do I do with that? So so first of all, uh, one of the most important things, and this is get, get a specific question, is asking yourself a question, do you think you're the only person who has experienced that regret or that mistake? And the answer, having collected regrets from all over the world over the last couple of years, is absolutely not. And so when I look at my mistakes and I say, say to myself, you know what? You're not that special. There are a lot of people who have those kinds of mistakes. That's a way to minimize their pain, and and then also to um, begin a process of making sense of them. Um, and so, so again, I think that the specific practice would be, are you the only person in the world who's made that mistake or had that regret? And the answer in 99 times out of 100 is no freaking way. I love that. And, and I do remember when you actually wrote about that in the book around regrets around kindness. And you wrote, I believe, that you now go about making kindness a higher priority. And I was curious as to how you're doing that. One of the things that the way this has been useful to me is that if something is bugging you for 10 years or 20 years, that's a message that's telling you something, you know? And so what's, what's it, what it's telling me, because I'm sure there are, there are many mistakes that I've made many screw ups I've had that I don't even remember anymore. Not only do they not bother me, but I barely have any recollection of them. So the ones that we recollect and that stick with us are very strong signals and they're strong signals about what we value. And the fact that this was such a strong signal finally alerted me, convinced me that kindness was something that I value. And, and I started thinking about that. I said, yeah, actually the people I admire are often very kind I admire that virtue in people. And so so regret, in my case, clarified what I valued. But it also instructed me about how to do things better. And I'll tell you what, let me let me give you a specific example of this. And and if my wife were here, she could she could testify to the, the truth of this. So again, my regrets about kindness were regrets about inaction, and they were regrets largely about exclusion and people being left out that was going on in front of my eyes and I didn't do anything about. So if you were to see me, Amantha, at a social gathering and many social gatherings back in the days when we had social gatherings, they are reappearing here in the United States of America. And what you often see at social gatherings, that they're, they're sometimes hard for people to navigate. And what you also see are, what you often sometimes see are like clumps of people um, talking, and then maybe one or two or three or four or five individuals who are kind of marooned at a loss, <laughs> right? Mm. And and you can, you, my wife will testify to this. I now always like go over to that person and bring them into the scrum that I'm in. 
I always will widen the circle to invite other people in. Um, and I really think now, now again, is that going to qualify me for sainthood? No. All right. Do I have a lot more work to do on kindness? Yes. But I would not be doing that had I not really faced up to my regrets about kindness, thought about them, you know, treated myself with some compassion, tried to make sense of those regrets and, and tried to instruct myself about what to do next time. That sounds that sounds very beautiful. I want to be at your events, Dan, because I feel like I'm often <laughs> that person standing on the outer. What what have you done on a more macro scale with with your life? Like we sort of talked about some of those, you know, concrete day-to-day things and you know, I guess that is a macro thing, identifying the the value of kindness being important. But are there, you know, perhaps like annual rhythms or rituals that you've got into, um, you know, now understanding the power of regret? Well, there are a few things. There, there are a lot of, there, so, so one thing that I, that I did this past December at the end of the year is that I listed my top three regrets from the year. Um, so as kind of like a preemptive New Year's resolution, that is instead of starting with my New Year's resolutions, I said, what are my old year's regrets? And so took a small, but I limited it to three. I'm a big believer in the power of three. If if I said list 10 regrets, maybe not, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to try to manufacture these regrets. So I said, what are the three, what are the three regrets that I, um, that I have for this year, from this previous year and what, and, and I, and I just thought those through and I listed them. I'm a big believer in getting stuff out of your head into a system, whether it's just simply writing it down or typing it into a document or just, you know, memorializing it somewhere. And, and so I think that practice at the end of the year of saying, what are the three big regrets of the year can be a catalyst for what to do about them. And if you go through this process that I'm suggesting, you list a regret, you treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Uh, by disclosing it, you're beginning to make sense of it. And then you try to extract a lesson from it. Then I think that's super helpful. I love the idea in your book about starting a regret circle. Can you talk about that? And is that something you've thought about doing yourself? I, I definitely have. I haven't done that one yet, um, but it is a, a very simple exercise where you um, you get maybe four or five people, and each of everybody shares. You so you start out. Each, uh, one person shares a regret. Um, that person talks about what lesson he or she has learned from it, and then. You go around and the other people try to give them advice and guidance on what to do next. Um, Because, again, one of the other things that we see from that regret teaches us is that and there are other ways to convey this. There are other sources for this as well, is that we tend to be much better at solving other people's problems than our own. So it's another way to enlist the crowd to help resolve some of your own problems. Which I guess in a way taps into the idea you write about using self-distancing strategies. like Exactly. Ask, yeah, um, like asking yourself, what would your best friend do in this situation? Um, a self-distancing strategy is something that, that you use. Are there examples where you've used those in your own life? Oh, my God, yes, on so many different occasions. So uh, the, the, you mentioned what the, 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 the decision-making tool of what would you tell your best friend to do? I use that all the time. I use that all the time. And, you know, because so I'll give you I'll give you a very specific, for instance. So I have been contemplating taking a sabbatical um, because I am 
slightly burnt out and, um, you know, sort of contemplating, you know, the next couple decades of my life. Uh, but I'm a little bit skittish about taking a sabbatical because I feel like it might, I might not accomplish anything. I might be spinning my wheels. It might be indulgent. Um, it might not be productive. And as I contemplated it, I asked that very question. I say, what would you tell your best friend to do? And, and if I, I would say, take the sabbatical. Like, I don't even have to think about it when I do that kind of <laughs> when I do that kind of self-distancing. So I use that a lot. Um, another self-distancing technique is um, is talking to yourself in the third person. I use that a lot on for exercise and sports. So when I'm running long distances, I will uh, it's embarrassing, but I will like yell at my not yell at myself, but sort of exhort myself using my first name. Um, so yeah, I use that all the, I use that all the time. I'm telling you the, the thing, what would I tell my best friend to do is the best decision-making tool there is. Yeah. I, I've absolutely used that one before and it is so helpful. Um, I want to talk about writing. One of the things that you do so well, um, is, is you tell stories and you're so great at making science and data, not just understandable, but memorable. And I would love to know what's your process for finding those stories, um, and really in, in the power of regret, they're all real life stories that illustrate oh, yeah. the points. Um, well, on this one, I mean, I, I, I for this book, I, I had you know a, a pretty distinct approach in that one of the things that to to write the uh, give me let me let me take two steps back for listeners who won't know this. So, so for this book, the power of regret, I relied on three. Um, legs of a research stool. The first leg was looking at some existing science on this emotion of regret uh, in particularly uh, social psychology, developmental psychology, cognitive science, neuroscience, um, to try to say what does science, existing science tell us about this emotion. The second leg was something that I called the American Regret Project, which was a piece of quantitative research, numbers-based research, where I did a a uh, very large public opinion survey of the U.S. population, the largest survey of U.S. attitudes about regret ever conducted and tried to find some insights there. And then the third, and this is going to get to your question, is I also set up something called the World Regret Survey, which was a giant collection tool um, where I, I invited people from around the world to submit a regret. And to my astonishment, we got 15,000 you know, very, very quickly. And we're now over 19,000 regrets from people in 105, 109 countries right now. And, um, and on that, what I did, so, so first of all, on that one, I read through at least the first 15,000 regrets and started separating out the ones that I found super compelling. What's more is that I gave people who filled out the survey the option of including their email. It was anonymous, but they could include their email address if they wanted to have a follow-up interview. And so, um, and so I read through the regrets. I found, I found certain ones that were compelling. If there were ones that were compelling and the person was willing to talk to me, I would reach out to them by email and do interviews. So I did hundreds of interviews to try to find the very best, most compelling stories. And how do you know when a story is going to be effective enough to get your point across? It's a good question. I don't know if you know. Um, and I don't have a, a way to do that. I mean, some of it is a, some of it is a gut, some of it is a gut instinct. I, I, I the, what I tend to do is I tend to tell the story to somebody else and see whether they lean in or 
their eyes glaze over. That's to me, sometimes a good test. Um, and also the other thing about it is, is that the stories you use are not equally weighted. That is sometimes a story can be brilliant for three sentences. You know what I mean? And, and it doesn't deserve much more than that. Sometimes a story needs three pages. And so I think that knowing how much weight the story deserves is, is really important as well. And one of the things that I think that, that, that less experienced writers do is that they don't weight the stories properly. That is, they think, like, well, I found out all this information about this person. Therefore, I need to report it. Um, and that's often that's often a mistake. And knowing like, oh, my gosh, I've done three interviews with this with this person and it's taken me three and a half hours of my life. But you know what? I just need a sentence. You got to be good with that. Um, and that's that's really important. The same thing is true with research. Um, you have to be able to explain the research thoroughly enough, but in a way that serves the readers rather than validates your decisions to do the research. So uh, let me be specific there. So there's in the book I wrote about, um, I looked at some of the research on when children develop the capacity for regret. So a lot of developmental psychology, lots and lots of experiments of giving say five-year-old scenarios and then seven-year-old scenarios and then nine-year-old scenarios and seeing whether they comprehend the idea of regret there, I probably read, I probably spent a month reading these papers and looking at some textbooks and, 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 and things probably ended up reading, I don't know, 50, 55 studies on this question. And when I got to writing it, I realized I could explain it all in like a paragraph. Wow. That must take a lot of restraint. It does. Believe me, it does. But here's the thing. Here's the way I look at it. It's like, the only thing worse than saying, oh, crap, I just took a month of work and only got a paragraph out of it. I don't like that. Believe me, that's not a happy day in the pink household or in the in pink ink world headquarters here. That is not a happy day. Um, however, what is an even worse day is torturing readers, is giving readers something that they don't need. That really bugs. That bugs me even more. So it's a question of, as, as is often the case in life in general, in my life in particular, which variety and intensity of discontent do you prefer? And how do you know that you are going to be torturing readers? I guess that's the key question. Like, how do you know that they don't want a whole chapter around kids and regret? I have a, I, 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 that I think is easier because if it bores me, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, I don't want to read this. Mm. Um, I, I think, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's a lot. I think that's a lot easier. Um, and again, you know, what you want to do is you want to, um, my, I mean, this is my own bias, but I think I've always, I, I think that most nonfiction books, and I've gotten in trouble for saying this, but I think that most nonfiction books are too long. I think that most books would be many of many books would be twice as good if they were half as long, because I think that that the the authors aren't concise enough. There's too much fluff in them and that many of these books probably don't deserve to be full fledged books. And so I try to be pretty relentless about what I what I put in there and what and more important, what I leave out the high. I mean, my favorite compliment in this book was I was in the UK two weeks ago and I did an interview radio interview and the producer said you know this book is a, this book is is really good like there's no fluff 
And I'm like, yeah, exactly. There's no fluff. Mm, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. And just pacing, it moves quickly. Um, I completely agree with what you're saying with nonfiction books. Um, I I love the story of Cheryl and her friendship with Jen, um, or rather her, her lost friendship with Jen. How did you decide that that was going to be one of the key stories in the book that you took throughout it? Partly because I found it a very relatable story uh, for myself, because I could see myself in the story. So as as narcissistic as that might sound, um, that was part of it. And the other part of it was, is that the the it was basically the color and emotion with which Cheryl described things and the fact that she was so racked by this. Um, I found that I found that pretty compelling. What's more is that this was quite representative of a lot of regrets. So when when um, when, you know, there were there were plenty of regrets, very, very much like Cheryl. So I felt like this was I could see myself in it and I knew that it was representing other people as well. I could definitely relate to that. Um, Very relatable story. We will be back with Dan soon, hearing about the online research tools that he swears by. And if you're looking for more tips to improve the way you work, I write a short fortnightly newsletter that contains three cool things that I've discovered that help me work better, which range from interesting research findings through to gadgets and software that I'm loving. You can sign up for that at howiwork.co. That's howiwork.co. Now, research is a huge part of your process. And as you mentioned, the research process for The Power of Regret was a bit different because you conducted your own very large scale research, but still there's a whole lot of academic research backing up the points that you're making. And I'd love to know once you've decided on the topic that your next book is going to be about, what does that research process look like? Yeah, it's semi-systematic in in that. So, so before I write a book, I will write a book proposal. And, and, and in writing a book proposal, I will look in in a cursory way at the key pieces of academic research, or at least for this one, the key pieces of academic research, just to get sort of the skeleton, just to get the broad ideas. And so, um, and so I have a sense of what the broad contours are, but at a very broad level uh, of what the, what the research says. So then when I start the real research, I'll go back and I'll read those papers again. More important as I will go to the footnotes to see what's being cited a lot, pull those papers, read those, go to their footnotes, read those. And eventually I'll, it'll start to get a little recursive that I'll start kind of chasing my tail. And I'll say, okay, I feel like in this one area, I've sort of sort of figured out the main things to read and what they, and what they say. Um, and then I, I'll do that for other kinds of topics and subtopics. And then at a certain point, I will start trying to see the structure of the book. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll come into it with a vague sense of what the structure is. It's usually wrong. That's okay. Uh, I'll come in. And then, um, then I often will start writing a, a, a piece of it. And for me, when I start writing it, I realize I, I understand the structure better. I realize what's working with the structure and what's not working with the structure. I also realize what more research I need to do. And so I'll sort of begin the process again, um, except that there'll be less research to do and I'll go back to writing. And so that's, it's sort of like these recursive, these recursive loops uh, between plunging into the research, 
doing some writing and figuring it out, using that to do a little more research, doing that, then coming back. And, and, the, and so the balance between research and writing starts to shift from mostly research and little writing to a balance to, at a certain point, mostly writing and very little more research. Are there key tools like online tools, for example, that you use to do your research? Um, I'm a big fan, believe it or not, of Google Scholar, um, which is a database that Google has that is that is very good at finding all kinds of all kinds of academic papers. Um, it is a very it's a it's a free tool. It's a simple tool and it works extraordinarily. It works extraordinarily well. Are there any other pieces of software that you find quite useful for for your work and organizing your thinking or productivity in general? Sure. Uh, I use, so there are, there are a bunch of different things. So I, well, when you say software, I mean, I actually still rely more on paper than a lot of people. Um, I, for, for the research that I care about, I, I, I print out every paper that I want to read. I read every, everything on paper, all the, all the things on paper. And then I actually put them in paper files as well. So it's bad environmentally. It's good cognitively, at least for me. Um, and I put all, uh, and so I have these massive um, uh, kind of accordion files organized by either chapter or parts of chapter and so forth that are stuffed with paper. So I do, I, so I, so I use, again, I use a lot of paper in, in, in organizing the regrets from this, these thousands of regrets from the world regret survey, I printed out an enormous number of them. And when I was thinking about categorizing them, my first move in categorizing them was laying them out on a table in my office and just stacking them up and restacking them and seeing what categories made sense to me. So a lot of it is very, for me, is very physical and analog. Now that said, there are a few tools that I, that I really like. Uh, I, I am a, I mean, it's a very simple tool, but you know, Dropbox. Um, if 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 terrorists hit the Dropbox servers, I would be out of work for the rest of my life. Um, uh, I organize a lot on Dropbox, um, and so that's really important to me. And then another one that's less well known that I use for trying to organize ideas is is a piece of software called. It's very inexpensive. I, I think it's like twenty bucks US. It's called um, it's called Scapel. S C A P P L E. It is a, um, it, it's kind of a mind mapping software, but it's the best mind mapping software that I have. It's, it's by an independent developer. It's not by one of the big tech companies. And, um, so I use Scapel on every chapter in this latest book. Wow. I've never heard of that software. I'm, I'm going to go look that up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very good. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a traditional, it's, it's mind mapping software, which there are plenty of, there are plenty of types of mind mapping software. In my view, this one seems the most intuitive, the most user friendly, and actually has the fewest bells and whistles on it. A lot of the mind mapping software has so many extra features that you don't need that it ends up being confusing. This is very, very simple, very elegant, uh, very elegant program. Now, a lot of the power of regret is about how we can use past mistakes to reorient our actions or even our goals in the present. And you're like, you're obviously very well known for writing about motivation and goals when you wrote Drive. And I was wondering for you, like, has the way that you set goals or think about motivation in your own life changed much since you wrote Drive? 
Yeah, I think a little bit. I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe even, maybe even quite a bit. I mean, it helped me understand, I think, why I became self-employed 20 plus years ago. Um, you know, I hadn't written about, you know, I, I didn't know the research on autonomy um, then, but once I understood it, I was like, oh, that makes sense about why I did what I did. Um, so it helped inform my understanding of myself, which is often somewhat useful. Um, one thing that it did is on the on the principle of mastery, um, it it helped me understand the importance of daily progress. So I'm pretty obsessive about you know recording and charting my daily progress. So um, so you know at the end of every day, I list what I got done that day, or at least three three big things I got done that day. Um, I for my um, uh, for even for exercise and, and running, I always log the, the miles that I run. I don't do it in kilometers. I should, but I do it in miles, um, log the, the miles that I run. And so that's, that's changed how, how, how I do a lot of stuff day to day. And on purpose, um, I do ask myself a lot, try to ask myself as many times as possible, like why I'm doing something, even if I'm in the weeds of writing a book, even the weeds of writing a chapter, you know, instead of saying to myself, okay, how do I finish this chapter? You know, how do, how do I get this to work? I think I, I take a step back and say, okay, why am I writing this chapter? Why is this advanced the story? Why is this good for readers? So I do, I guess I do now that I think about it, employ a lot of that stuff day to day on my own. What was your answer to that question when you were writing The Power of Regret? Was there a macro reason or motivating factor? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, on that, there was, a, there was a, definitely a macro reason there. And actually figuring out that macro reason was really important to me um, because I was kind of spinning my wheels for a while um, until I figured that out. And for me, what I wanted to do was the macro reason was to try to reclaim this emotion because I, I just think we've so fundamentally misunderstood the emotion of regret. We think that it is dangerous when in fact it is actually useful. We think that it, it makes us weak when in fact it can make us strong. And so I wanted to reclaim this, this emotion because I'm convinced it's our most transformative emotion. And that if people know how to deal with it, they're going to lead better lives. So on this one, there was, there was a little bit more perhaps than maybe... Than, than some of the other ones that a little bit more of a missionary zeal on this one than on the others. What gave you the idea to write about regret? Because as I said, it doesn't seem like an obvious thing to do. Because I was, you know, because I was, I was dealing with regrets of my own. And I was also at a stage in my life where I was pondering these things. So, you know, I don't know if I would have, I mean, I've been writing books for 20 years to my amazement. And I don't think I would have written this book in my thirties. Um, I don't think I had enough, I don't think I had enough mileage on me, but in my fifties, it felt kind of inevitable because I was looking backward, um, at decisions I'd made or hadn't made. And some of them bothered me. And I said, okay, how can I use this to live the rest of my life? And, you know, one of the things that I've discovered going back to self-compassion is that, you know, while all of us are kind of special in our own way, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We're actually not that special. So if I'm reckoning with regrets, if I'm wrestling with regrets, then chances are other people are too. And, and, and that suggests that there's a wider appeal for this topic than might meet the eye. And how, like, how do you decide that 
that this is like that this warrants, you know, spending the next three or so years of your life on? Like, how did you know it was that important? Because that's essentially what we're talking about, if not longer, totally. when it comes to writing a book. Oh, I, 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 it's even longer. I mean, I got a, a call from a newspaper reporter uh, last week about a book I wrote 20 years ago. You know, so uh, um, this is one reason why I write book proposals before agreeing to write a book. And for me, a book proposal is usually 25 or 30 pages long. And it lays out what the book is, who I think is going to buy it, why it's different from anything else. And that action does two things. First, it, 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 it forces me to say, okay, do I actually want to spend time with this idea? And there are a lot of ideas that you don't want to spend that much time with. And so, and, and then also it allows you to see whether there's a there there. And because if you can't sustain it very easily in 35 pages, you're not going to be able to sustain it very easily in 275 pages. Uh, and so it's a, so to me, that book proposal is a really great test. And I have had situations where I, um, I once years ago was between books, figuring out what to do next. And I, my wife and I had, we had little kids at the time and I said, okay, guys, I got to like write a proposal for a new book. I'm not getting any traction on this thing. And I sent them away to my in-laws house. Um, and I said, okay, give me guys, give me two weeks and I can, you know, that way I can just, I, I got to get this thing done and, and I don't want to torture you and you guys can have fun without me. And so I buckled down and I think after like eight or nine days, I called my wife and I said, I got some good news and some bad news. Uh, the good news is that you can come home now. The bad news is because in writing this proposal, I realized this is not a book. This does not hold together as a book. And believe me, Amantha, I'd much rather find it out then than after I contracted to write a book and had to disappoint my editors and you know deal with that stuff. <laughs> yes, definitely. And I remember when, when I last had you on How I Work, we did go into quite a bit of depth around writing a book proposal. So for, for anyone that is listening and is like, what is a book proposal? Um, I will link to that past interview in, in the show notes. Um, now, I remember like right at the end of the book, you, you also write about another regret that you have and you say that you regret not forging enough close connections with friends and mentors and colleagues and now you try harder to reach out. And I was wondering, what does that look like? What practically um, do you find yourself doing now to, um, do, to act on that regret? Um, well, one thing is that if I find myself at a juncture saying, oh, I'm thinking about person A, should I reach out? Being at that juncture answers the question for me. So I've done a much better job about sending someone a text message saying, hey, um, do you have uh, you have 15 minutes to talk this weekend? Nothing wrong. No agenda. Just want to see how you're doing. Like I would never do that before. And now I do that. What else do you do? On the reaching out, um, I'm trying on this one. Is that I'm, I, I, I'm a little bit more likely to initiate a social gathering than I have been in the past. Uh, usually I never initiate any social gatherings and actually often try to avoid them. And so, um, and so, so I'm getting a little bit better about trying to initiate those. 
Now, Dan, for people that want to consume more of your work and certainly the power of regret, uh, what is the best way for people to do that? I just go to my website, which is danpink, D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com, danpink.com. Amazing. Dan, thank you for writing yet another just amazing book that has certainly changed my life. So well, thank you. Thank and you thanks for doing what you do. Thanks for having me back on the podcast. Maybe I'll write another one so I can come back again in a few years. <laughs> yeah, please do. Don't take that sabbatical. No, do. It sounds like that's a good thing for you to do. Well, um, thank you so much, Dan. There were so many things that I took out of this chat with Dan and also his new book, The Power of Regrets, which I loved. I really was into the idea about Dan's annual reflection on his top three regrets from the past year to inform the year ahead. It's definitely one of the many things that I plan to try implementing in my year ahead. Now, if you're loving how I work, Maybe you might want to recommend it to other people that you think would also benefit. You can simply hit the share icon wherever you're listening to this podcast from and share it with someone else that you think would like it. How I Work is produced by Inventium with production support from Deadset Studios. The producer for this episode was Liam Reardon. And thank you to Martin Imba, who does the audio mix for every episode and makes everything sound so much better than it would have otherwise. See you next time.